Good morning. Good to be with you guys. I feel like it's been a while. Glad to be here. Like Doug said, this is the last of our teachings in this So Many Questions series. And as I was thinking about this concept, I thought about the words Jesus said about kids. He said, let the little children come to me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I wondered if part of what Jesus loved about kids was that they were never afraid to ask a really great question, especially about God. I remember once after watching Charlton Heston play Moses in the Ten Commandments, terrifying movie, uh, I remember asking my mom, will God still love me if I don't believe in him? Because I really just didn't have any understanding yet of God. I can't remember what she said, but it must have been kind and good. Just kids just ask great questions. But somehow, when we grow up, we start to believe that being grown up means we need to have all the answers to all the questions. And if we don't have an answer, we have to make something up. Because especially in the world of faith, we think that knowing all the answers equals spiritual maturity. And I'm pretty confident that is not always a true equation. In fact, the people that Jesus was most frustrated with were the people who believed they knew all the answers. And it ties into then this study that the Barna Group did of young people who grew up in the church and then left the church when they were older. The number one reason that they left the church, the highest number of participants in this survey, said they left the church because Christians think they know all the answers. Since when did we decide that being a Christian means being a know-it-all? Just curious to me. And I think it would be a good thing. This is just my personal opinion. I think it would be a good thing for all of us at times to acknowledge that life is a mystery. It would be a refreshing thing sometimes for those of us in the church to say the words of one of my favorite TV characters ever. This will date you if you know who this is. Go ahead and throw up the clip. I see nothing. I know nothing. Love that. Who would know that Sergeant Schultz was actually quoting the Apostle Paul, who said to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, and I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus loved a good question. And Jesus loved receiving good questions and he loved asking good questions. It was part of the Jewish rabbinical culture that he was a part of. And so in the spirit of the great question asker, I want us to look at five questions this morning. We're going to zip through them. And I I want us to look at them with a real attitude of humility, like maybe we don't know everything, okay? So the first question is, is it normal to not understand the Bible? My answer to that is yes. Thank you very much. Next question. Why do people... Seriously, though. The Bible is hard. Has anyone ever just said that, acknowledged it? It's hard because it's unlike any other book that you and I read. It's hard because it's not really even a book. It's a compilation of all kinds of 
books and poems and letters and different kinds of genres. It's an ancient book. We have to remember that. It was written in ancient languages, different languages, by different people. Inspired by one God, yes. But it was written by different people in different lands with different perspectives. And and here's another thing for us to remember. It is an Eastern book. This is not a Western-style guidebook or a little easy answer book or a precious moments feel-good book, no matter how many covers we put on this thing. It's not going to turn it into those kinds of things. The Bible is the big, big story of God creating and then redeeming and rescuing the world. It is the story of who God is. And it's meant to be read as a grand sweeping narrative, not as a series of unrelated verses or unrelated principles or little little facts. It is meant to be read also in context, in the historical, the geographical, the political, the religious context. And the truth of the matter is, so many of us don't want to take the time or make the effort to do that. We instead demand that the Bible give us what we want, be it courage or hope or comfort or answers or some verse that we can throw at our neighbor because we want to show them we're right and they're wrong, blah, blah, blah. And if it doesn't give it to us in five minutes, we're done. Don't kid yourself. The Bible is wild country. And we need to stop saying to people and to each other that it is simple and easy and manageable. It is the book of a lifetime. And it is a book that will test our will. And it will test our passion to know and to try to understand God. So listen, don't feel bad or dumb, or like you don't love Jesus, if you pick up the book and get stuck or confused or bored, it is hard. But just because this is true, we don't get to say, therefore, I do not need to read it. The Bible is your lifeline to your life with God. God speaks to human beings more clearly through the scriptures than in any other way. This is a living and active text. It is not dead. And also, if if we are on the journey of becoming fully devoted followers of Jesus, we have to engage his teachings. We have to understand his story and his life and his history. Because wait for this. This is so profound. This is why you all got out of bed this morning to hear this one statement. You cannot follow someone you don't know. The Bible is so important. And that's why 
we've been working so hard at Orchard to remove the hurdles that people have to the scriptures. You know, Sally Baker offers these amazing how to understand the Bible classes, Bethel, square one, these kinds of things. That's why we as a teaching team are going to be walking through the New Testament in the fall when we kick off our series then, uh, uh, just like we walk through the Old Testament this year. That's why um, we, we, we put the daily scriptures on the website. If you've been following along or if you've clicked and entered your email address and you get these daily scriptures sent to your email, you are going to read through the entire gospel of John this summer. We're working so hard to help us understand the scriptures. But I just want to close with this kind of uh, interesting thought for you to ponder on this hot Sunday. Mark Twain said this. He said, most people are bothered by those passages of scripture they do not understand. But the passages that bother me are those I do understand. See, love your enemies is not hard to understand, is it? Be completely humble. Lay down your life for the sake of others. It's not so much the parts of scripture that we don't understand, I think, that keep us up at night or that should keep us up at night. It's those parts of scripture that are clear as a bell. We just don't want to do them. On that happy note, next question. Why do people say you have to be in church to be in the presence of God? Oh, I just think they're trying to get you to go to church. Don't you think? (laughs) I mean, that one was easy to me. Um, It's a great question. Somebody out there must be telling people you have to go to church. I think it's because we call church God's house. We all believe like he lives here and has like a TV room and stuff. I don't know. I don't know. Well, why do people say that? Well, they might be trying to guilt you into coming to church, but it might also be because they're just wrong about the presence of God. But they are in good company. Think about this for a minute. Think about uh, what you hear coming out of human beings' mouths. We often think that we get to be the deciders about when and where God is present. So we pray and we invite God to be with us. We ask him to join us. We welcome his presence among us like he is some kind of an invited guest. And like we are the bouncers at the front door, so to speak, who get to decide when and where God is allowed. Seriously, think about that for just a minute. Don't you think God howls with holy laughter every time we do that? Like, oh God, we welcome you here. And God's like, excuse me, (laughs) I was here first. Did you forget this little detail? The psalmist puts it as clearly as could be. Psalm 139. This is David. Where can I go from your spirit? He he had many things he was trying to run from God on. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, anybody in the depths this morning? God's there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. God's not just present in the church. But many of us live in what what I would call, and other writers have called, a state of spiritual apartheid. 
You know, the apartheid movement was that sharp division in South Africa between black people and white people, evil, and it's now gone. But we think this way sometimes in our spiritual life. We believe that God is over here in kind of religious places, doing and saying religious things. And our real life, which we really consider as not very spiritual, is over here. And never really do the two meet, except maybe when we choose, and that's maybe when we go to church. This is our, quote-unquote, time with God. And other than that, we often live our lives as practical atheists. We live our life over here, pretending that God doesn't exist until we show up over here and go to church. We are just like little kids playing peekaboo, who when they cover their eyes and therefore can't see the person right in front of them, they really believe that person is not there. That's why they're so excited when they take their hands off their eyes and they see you. It's not that you're so cute or handsome or anything. It's just they thought you were gone and now you're there. It's an amazing thing. We are like that with God. Like he's only around when we choose to open our eyes to him. Writer Mark Buchanan, who wrote a great book called Your God is Too Safe, said this. He says, God does not need to be invoked, invited. We do. We need to be called to our senses, to be as present to God as God is to us. We need to stop running and stand still. And maybe... Maybe we think church is the only place God is present because church is the only place anymore where any of us show up and sit down and shut up. Oh, I sense the presence of God. And he's like, I've been waiting for you to shut your mouth. Take the things out of your ears. Turn the, you know, Jesus Buchanan goes on, sorry. Jesus, the one who said, listen, he said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is in the midst of our days and our events and our weeks and our weaknesses. He's in the middle of our rising up and our lying down, if only we noticed. Next question. What is the role of the Holy Spirit? I have three minutes to answer this deeply profound theological question. So I apologize, Holy Spirit. But before we talk about what is the role of the Holy Spirit, I want to talk about who. Who is the Holy Spirit? Because for some weird reason, we forget sometimes who he is and we treat him like he's some weird uncle that only shows up at like special dinners and we're like nervous about him because he might do something to throw the whole thing off. We do. We treat the Holy Spirit that way. The Holy Spirit is God. We worship a God who is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we need to be so careful to not make the Holy Spirit some weird separate entity out there. The Holy Spirit is God. And so 15 times in the Gospel of John, as Jesus was trying to prepare his rather hard-headed disciples for his departure, 15 times he said to them, I am leaving but I am sending someone in my place. I am about to leave you, but the Holy Spirit is coming. And he was saying to them, I have been the way God has been present with you in this world, but now I am going to send the Spirit who will be this same God present to you and to all who believe in me in a new way. 
Eugene Peterson puts it so clearly. He says the Holy Spirit is God's way of being with us. The Holy Spirit is God's way of being with us. And so when Jesus returned to heaven, it was God the Spirit who came upon the disciples with power and who gave them the ongoing power to continue the work of Jesus in the world. And it's that same Holy Spirit who now gives us the power, the church, to continue the work of Jesus in the world. And then he does all these other things. The Holy Spirit is a serious multitasker. Through that power, then, the Spirit equips the church. The same power that raised Jesus from the grave, Paul says. In that power, the Spirit equips the church with spiritual gifts to demonstrate and proclaim the gospel to the world. The Spirit expands and deepens your faith. Any amount of faith you have in your heart about God comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. He testifies to us. That Jesus is Lord. He convicts us of sin and guides us into truth. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the advocate, the counselor, the one who defends and supports us when the bottom drops out of our world. And Paul says in Romans 8.26 that when we do not know how to pray, the Spirit intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words. The Holy Spirit helps us understand the scriptures too. tie that back into the question about the Bible. Ask for the Spirit's help to understand the Holy Spirit is basically God working in and through and around his people to accomplish God's work in the world. And he's a lot more, but I only have three minutes. Next question. This is probably my favorite question. My mind wanders in church sleepover group right here. they're like she wasn't looking at us my mind wanders in church what can i do about that is that awesome whose question was that you want to just raise your hand i want to say to you on that question your mind wanders in church welcome to the human race from the beginning of time This has been a problem. This happened all the way back in the early days of the church when you would think things were so exciting that people would be awake for hours. Listen to this story. It's not on the screen. I just need you to listen to it. You can even close your eyes if you want. That's what my husband says to me. I listen better with my eyes closed. (laughs) Also, I listen better while I'm watching football. Just keep talking to me. Seriously, Chuck? Listen to this. Acts 20. Listen to this story. It's awesome. You guys especially listen. This is a favorite story. On the very first day of the week, we came together to break bread. This was the church. And Paul spoke to the people. And because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. And seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus. Listen to this. Who was sinking into a deep sleep. As Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story. (laughs) And he was picked up dead, whatever that means. I don't know how you get picked up dead. Paul went down. Paul's not even thrown off by this. He just goes downstairs, throws himself upon the young man, puts his arm around him and says, don't be alarmed. He's alive. He doesn't even apologize, like, was I going too long? Maybe he had a clock like this one that's supposed to help him know how long he's going. I apologize, folks. I'm going to, who knows what, who knows what time it is? Uh, I don't know. Anyway, then Paul went back upstairs and broke bread and ate. 
And after, listen, after talking until daylight. So he almost killed a man and he kept going. He left. And the people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. What? Welcome to the human race, my friends. Because here's the deal. I want to talk about now, though, and I think this is very appropriate for us to think about. There's a book that was written called The Shallows, where scientists were starting to discover that our brains are actually becoming altered by our technology. And we are having a harder and harder time focusing on one task or one thought. I can see all of you who are struggling in here. So in church, you don't get to click on a YouTube link, right? That's going to show you how something was done or just keep you busy for a few minutes. You don't get to like turn off the worship song and click the down thumb on it to go to the next one, right? You can't fast forward the teacher if she's going on and on and on and has no clock. (laughs) You can't, sorry. But here's where corporate worship, which is what we're doing here, can actually become a spiritual training ground. I just want to say this. It is okay if you feel bored here sometimes. Because guess what? Church is sometimes boring. True? But can God use that to grow you and me up spiritually and to help us become fully devoted followers of Jesus? Yes, he can. See, in some ways, I think God might be asking some of us to do the hard work of preparing to focus on him on a Sunday morning, preparing our minds to come here and take in the truth of God. Maybe we need to get enough sleep the night before. Sorry again, you guys, I'm not picking on you. Sleepovers are good. Maybe we need to eat a decent breakfast. Instead of coming here and thinking a Danish and coffee is going to keep your mind and body going. Maybe if you don't like the song, you can still sing it. It is a great way to practice humility because guess what? Church ain't about you. And you can come here and just realize you are not just here for yourself. You are part of a bigger thing that is going on in the world. So it is a good discipline, my mind-wandering friends, in this world of 10-second sound bites and 140-character tweets, to discipline your mind to pay attention to something deeper and truer than just the next little bit of e-news. I don't really care if Katie and Tom are getting a divorce. I mean, I feel bad for them, but I don't need to know the details. I need to know what God's word says to me about my life. So maybe the hard work of staying focused can be part of the way that you worship God. Last question, and it's the easiest one. How do I know God's plan for my life? Isn't that the question of the ages? I wish I had a three easy step answer. Because if I did, I would write a book and then I would be rich and famous. And then I would say to you, that's God's plan for my life. And then that would be awesome. But I I don't have a three easy step answer. All I really have is a story from my own life with my awesome husband, Chuck. Um, This question, what is God's plan for my life, dogged Chuck and me for the first decade of our married life together. Decade and a half, really. (laughs) And it dogged us because we had all kinds of misconceptions about God and how he works and about life. And we could have used a lot of wisdom. For Chuck, it looked this way. He believed that God had 
a little kind of pinpoint plan for his life. Very specific, very detailed. And his job as a young man was to try and figure it out. And for some reason, God like hid it from him. And so it was all this hard work. And if Chuck didn't figure out God's plan for him, he would miss it forever. And he would miss being God's person in this world. He was terrified. And for me, I just never imagined that God would call me to something that would put to use all the things I most love to do in life. I called these things uh, my non-marketable skills. You know, I love to read. I love to tell a good story. I have a good memory for where things are located in books. I love studying about God. I just didn't think God would ever use any of those things. I just kind of believed what he would call me to would be something awful and hard and horrible that I hated. That was the antithesis of who I was. So that when I chose to do it, I would be showing him in the world how much I loved him. I mean, it's a little twisted. So Chuck and I flopped around for almost 15 years, waiting for God to show up with a sign that said, Go here, do this. And he never did. And here's what I wish someone would have told us back then. Embedded in this question, I I can't tell if it's... Can you put the next slide up? Embedded in this question are three statements that I think can help us not come to an answer, but think about this question in more detail for our own lives. So the first truth that I think embedded is embedded in this question is that we need to know God. Before we figure out God's plan, you can put up the next slide. We need to know God. What God cares about most, what he cares about the most in this whole world, is that we know him. Jesus even said, this is what eternal life is. In John 17, 3, eternal life is this, knowing the one true God and knowing the son whom he sent. God's primary job in this world is calling all of his lost children back home. And so if you want to know God's plan for your life, the first thing you need to do is to devote your life to knowing God. The the writer of Psalm 143.10 links these two things together. He says, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. You see, God's plan and God's direction and his guidance is always embedded in a rich relationship with him. It's not a commodity that we can just wrestle from God apart from being in a relationship with him. That's just not the way it works. So the very first thing we need to think about when we're wondering what God wants us to do with our life is do I know him? Am I on the pathway toward knowing God? Look at the question again. Next slide. How do I know God's plan for my life? The next thing we need to think about is not ourselves. The next thing we need to think about is we need to know God's plan. This was life-changing for me. Henry Blackaby uh, wrote this workbook called Experiencing God. I don't know how many of you have ever done it. It had two things that kept it under my bed for three years, unopened. One, it was written by two Baptist men, which for me as a female teacher uh, was going to be bad. So I called it the Baptist men book, and I just kept it. Why was it under my bed? I don't know. Second thing was it was a fill-in-the-blank book, which just makes me want to stick a fork in my eye. I just have a hard time... We'll fill in the blank books related to God. Read it, changed my life. Probably the reason I'm standing up here. So I apologize to the two Baptist men. This is what Henry Blackaby said. Once I know what God is doing, 
then I know what I need to do. The focus needs to be on God. God is at work all around you right now. This is true. Watch to see where he is working and join him. You want to know what God is up to and what he wants you to be up to with him? Immerse yourself in a community of faith and then immerse yourself in the life of Jesus. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen my father. And when you look at Jesus, you will see God's redemptive plan for his world, his plan to reconcile all things to himself. You will see his grand restoration project at work. Pay attention to Jesus, and you will start to see how God wants to institute his plan. You will start to understand that Jesus said he came to save and not to condemn. He came for the least of these. He came to serve and not just be served. The, 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 he tells parables like the parable of the Good Samaritan where he tells people, if you want to follow me, you've got to cross borders, cross hurdles, cross religious and ethnic and social and political divides to serve your neighbor. He calls his followers to lay down their lives and take up their cross and give themselves away for the sake of others. This is God's plan. And sometimes we skip this step because it challenges our self-centered worldview. We don't really want to know what God is up to or how he's up to it because we really don't want to join him. We don't want to give up our lives to follow him. We don't want to think of others more highly than we think of ourselves. We don't want to trust God with our resources. We just want him to tell us what job to take, who to marry, and what house to buy. And if in the meantime he could get us the job, get us the girl, and buy us the house, we'd be so grateful. But God doesn't work that way. God's not just a genie in a bottle. He wants your heart. So first, we got to know him, and then we've got to do the work of figuring out what he's doing in the world. And the last thing, it's still embedded in this question, how do I know God's plan for my life? I need to know myself. As best you and I can, in great humility, we need to try to understand and joyfully accept who God made us to be. And those of us who tell you, well, that's an unspiritual thing. You shouldn't spend any time focused on yourself uh, at all. That They're just wrong. I'm sorry. They just are. Listen to what Augustine prayed. Let me know myself, he said to God, and let me know thee. These two things are hooked together. John Calvin. Nearly all the wisdom we possess consists of two parts. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. You see, Chuck and I spent over 10 years and over a lot of money uh, floundering around, feeling like we were missing the balance beam of God's will for us because he didn't write it out on a sheet of paper. We were obsessed about what we were supposed to be doing for a living, and we never really asked ourselves, how did God wire us? What do we love to do? What are our strengths? What brings us joy? Where are our gifts and our passions and our dreams? What are we doing in this world when we forget about time? 
No, just take Chuck. This man had an economics degree from Harvard. He loved working with money. He was the only college student I knew who was already in college, giving money away, investing money wisely, saving money for the purposes of God. When I was in his dorm room and saw those files of all those Christian organizations that young man gave his money to, I knew he was the man for me. He said he fell in love with me the day that I drove the steering wheel from the passenger seat with my feet. It was a very strong day for me. So you can kind of see how our relationship works. He's like, seriously, that's awesome. Um, Chuck was uniquely designed and created and gifted to work with people and their money. And yet he kept begging God to show him what he should do with his life. And he agonized because he felt like he received no direction. One night, newly married, I found my husband out on the street, laying down, just looking up at the skies. This is a bad feeling for a young wife. I was like, get up, get up. He just, he kept begging God to tell him what to do. But what we know now and what we wish someone would have told us back then was that God was probably waiting for Chuck to just realize that once he's in a growing relationship with God, he should do what he most loved to do. And he should fit that in with what God is doing in the world. Man, that would have saved us a lot of energy. And I believe God was saying to me, Alice, I'm not going to design and create you in a very specific way with these unique passions and gifts and lead you to never use those traits as as you partner with me to redeem the world. Do what you love to do. Do it in relationship with me and do it alongside what I'm already doing in the world. So I encourage you with that. No matter what age or stage you're at in life, these three things can be true. And in the end... Every time you and I face uncertainty in our life or confusion about what lies ahead, it is an opportunity not to receive some perfect answer on a sheet of paper, but to trust God. He might not give us step-by-step guidance, but he always gives us himself. He always does. And he is really the answer to this question and to every other question in the universe. This is the mystery of our faith. Jesus Christ and him crucified. And in the end, that's all we really need to know. Let's pray. God, we are curious people. We wonder what makes this world go around, why we're here on this earth, what we're supposed to be doing. And in your goodness and your graciousness, you give us your word and your truth. And in the end, you give us yourself. Would you help us all remember this morning that that's all we really need? Amen.